I'm going to assume that most of you, if not all, have heard the phrase, history is written by the victors. This familiar phrase is the first inkling that many get that history is not as objective as we sometimes pretend. I mean, usually it's good at pegging down the who, what, when, and where, but once you get into the how and the why, it becomes very subjective very fast. And that is going to be particularly true for this next short run of episodes as we examine the outbreak of violence in a remote corner of the Arizona Territory in the 1880s. We know the main beats of when the underlying tension came to the surface as guns being fired, and we can count the bodies, but then we get into the sticky question of why. Why was this one community plagued with these issues? Was it a boiling over of a feud between two families, just a western version of the infamous Hatfield and McCoy enmity? Or was it part of the ongoing conflict between cattlemen and sheep herders competing for increasingly shrinking rangeland? Or was it a failure of law enforcement? Or even the civilian court system for that matter? Was it even racially motivated? Or was it the result of a conflict between morality and honor? Or, as one author has argued, was it a result of the ongoing trauma that frontier pioneers suffered while living at the edge of Apache country? Each of these has been argued persuasively, and yet none can be said to be definitive, as historians continue to fight over what was the cause. Even the shootout at the OK Corral, as picked over a historical moment as any, doesn't come close to being as psychoanalyzed as this running feud at the base of the Mogollon Rim. So be warned as we move forward, there are no easy answers here. What we will find is an escalating series of disagreements, tension, and violence that has come to be known as the Pleasant Valley War. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 120, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 1, The Battleground. Welcome back, everyone. I want to start off today by thanking you all for your patience with me as I blew past our return date of December 4th. As I said in my little explainer last week and on social media, the baby threw a couple curveballs at us that kept me from being able to read and write and record. But I think I finally have gotten into my groove now, and so we are back to our main narrative. I also have to apologize if my voice isn't what it should be, as on top of everything, I've come down with a bug that has been bothering me with a sore throat and a persistent cough. However, the show must go on, and in our case, that show is the story of Arizona, specifically that of the infamous conflict that took place in one of its more remote corners in the 1880s. So, before we talk about anything, we need to set the scene a little bit. As I mentioned way back in episode 3, Arizona can be roughly divided into three regions or zones. The bottommost is the Sonoran Desert, part of the basin and range topography that makes up a lot of the western U.S. The topmost is the Colorado Plateau, that massive, relatively horizontal piece of geography that enters the state from the northeast. But between those two 
is the transitional zone, running from the New Mexico state line in an upward swoop toward US-93 west of Prescott. Defined by tightly clustered mountain ranges with narrow, shallow basins, this zone is bordered by the Sonoran Desert in the south and the awe-inspiring Mogollon Rim, which is just the edge of the Colorado Plateau. And this is called a transitional zone for a reason, as it's here that you'll start the elevation game that changes the scenery from cactus to conifers, dust devils to driving blizzards in the winter, and roadrunners to snow geese. And it's in this changing zone that our story will take place. South of the Mogollon Rim and east of the Mazatal Mountains, or where State Route 87 will take you up to Payson, is the drainage of Tonto Creek in the upper waters of the Salt River. This area is known as the Tonto Basin, which, up to this part of our story, has been one of the most wild and rugged areas in the entire territory of Arizona. As you may have noticed by now, most exploration of the state tended to happen on an east-west axis, rather than a north-south one. Most of that was because people were mainly trying to get through Arizona to California or New Mexico, so a semi-straight horizontal line was really what they wanted. But it's also because the geography didn't really lend itself to north-south travel, with such obstacles as the Mogollon Rim and the Grand Canyon making exploration up and down more than a little difficult. Yet another reason for this area's remoteness is, and here's something I haven't gotten to say in a hot minute, the Apache. The Tonto Apache, called that by the White Mountain Apache who thought they were fools for continuing to fight against the White Eyes, made great use of the ruggedness of the Tonto Basin to resist the arrival of the Americans. Side canyons, ravines, and other geological rough spots made it the perfect place to disappear. And we have talked about this area a few times over the course of our time together. Back in episode 52, I mentioned how King S. Woolsey led an expedition to the southern part of the Tonto Basin in 1864, where he managed to massacre a lot of Apache and Yavapai who were running around. And then, in episode 66, we touched on how General Crook's original mission in Arizona involved a brutal winter campaign in 1872 and 1873 that involved basically invading the Tonto Basin to convince the Apache to surrender. One of the foremost leaders of resistance was an Apache named Delche, or Red Ant, who went from being the symbol of Apache obstinance to yet another chief surrendering to Crook in April 1873. So, by 1874, the Tonto Basin was suddenly open for American colonization, though aside from mining boomtowns such as Globe and McMillanville, people didn't exactly rush to fill it in. Part of that was due to the fact that this land butted up against the newly established White Mountain Apache Reservation, and rebellions and breakouts were still a pretty common thing. Once the Apache on the reservation were disgruntled enough and they decided to leave, they usually ran up around the Tonto Basin, exactly where people were trying to make their new homes. But we're going to get back around to that in just a second. Because when American settlers first started coming into the Tonto Basin in the mid-1870s, they stumbled upon a place smack dab in the center of the transitional zone. It was called Pleasant Valley. Now, I want to confess that
that the geography confuses me just a little bit here. Some sources claim that the Tonto Basin and Pleasant Valley are synonymous, while others say that Pleasant Valley is a subsection of the Tonto Basin, while others say that they sit side by side, with Pleasant Valley to the east of the Tonto Basin. If any of my listeners have first-hand knowledge of the naming conventions used in the area, definitely please let me know. But the area we will specifically be talking about is the location of modern-day Young, that lone town surrounded by the Tonto National Forest, and only accessible by going up the unpaved section of State Route 288, or down from the rim using the unpaved Forest Road 512. Using this metric, Pleasant Valley appears to be demarcated by the imposing Mogollon Rim to the north, and the Sierra Ancha Mountains to the west and south, and the canyon that makes up the eponymous Canyon Creek to the east. How this area got its name is kind of uncertain. Most just assume it was because it was a very nice place to look at. I mean, it is watered by several tributaries of Tonto Creek, including Cherry Creek, Walnut Creek, Spring Creek, Marsh Creek, and Hagler Creek. And in this valley, you'll find Ponderosa Pine, Black Walnut, Oak, Cottonwood, Sycamore, Willow, and Alder trees, along with Pinion, Juniper, and Cedar at its lower elevations. And when Americans first entered the valley, they found grasses growing so high that it touched the belly of a horse. So yeah, that certainly sounds picturesque. However, there is one other theory. The place was entirely left off of an 1884 map of the territory. However, an 1886 map made by the army to outline expeditions to route the Apache in the area does show a number of features that no longer exist or have different names, including a curious crescent valley. As Pleasant Valley is more or less crescent-shaped, author Don Dedera theorizes that someone misread the hastily scratched crescent on this army map, and that misreading has stuck ever since. However it came about, the name Pleasant Valley stuck as a few adventurous souls moved into the area. The 1880 census shows that there were about 250 people living across the entire expanse of the Tonto Basin. Up in Pleasant Valley, by the same time, there were less than half a dozen ranches, mostly small family groups and a few enterprising young men. One source says that the 1880 census lists only four houses and 11 individuals in Pleasant Valley, though other sources seem to contradict this. As I said, movement into the valley was slow, as the threat of Apache attacks kept most Americans at bay. There were some exceptions, such as Emmett Gentry, known as Old Man Gentry, who had moved to a plot of land right next to the reservation and actually ended up marrying an Apache woman. We also need to mention the Middleton family, which in 1875 established a ranch on a tributary of Canyon Creek, just south of Pleasant Valley, on the western edge of the reservation. I mention them mainly because they would bear the brunt of repeated breakouts, especially in 1881 and 1882, which would become legendary. So this requires some backtracking, but remember in episode 92, we discussed Nock I Decline, the dreamer, who was killed in 1881 by American troops made nervous by his dances and pronunciations that he could raise Apache leaders from the dead. 
And as we discussed in episode 95, one of those spurred on by the dreamer's death was the Sibiku leader Natiotish. He and his warriors raided across the Tonto Basin and even down into San Carlos over the course of a year, before being resoundingly defeated at the Battle of Big Dry Wash on the Mogollon Rim in July 1882. Anyway, legend says that when Natiotish's warriors were on the warpath in 1881, two men were sent to warn the Middleton family. These men had just arrived when Apaches surrounded the cabin, but at first the family took them for scouts, not renegades. So they were taken completely unaware when the Apache opened fire and they had to retreat into their cabin. The legendary bit is that the teenage son of the family was hit by rifle fire, but he calmly asked his mother for a pair of scissors to trim his protruding bowels so he could keep defending the home for another few hours until the Apache retreated and he could finally die knowing his family was safe. Now, that's a great story, but unfortunately it's not true. The Apache did attack, and the family lost a member along with one of the two men who came to warn them, but there was no cinema-esque self-sacrifice showcasing the pioneer spirit. The family had just a single rifle among them and basically hid in their cabin for hours while the Apache fired at the home. One year later, after more attacks, the family would finally remove to the relative safety of Globe. However, during this second wave of attacks, the Apache actually managed to kill two residents of Pleasant Valley itself, Lewis Howden and Charles Sixby. Sixby's brother, Garrett, who went by Bob for some reason, was also shot through the lung of all places, but he miraculously survived by barricading himself inside of his cabin. One source said he even climbed into his chimney to hide. I go on this long digression because these were stories that were floating around at the time, but also because they show the type of trauma the pioneers were wont to suffer. And author Eduardo Obregón Pagán in his book, Valley of the Guns, makes his central thesis that this type of trauma is what will eventually lead into the armed conflicts to come. And finally, this actually won't be the last time that we will mention the now-abandoned Middleton Ranch. But for now, let's turn our attention to another family that moved into Pleasant Valley in the late 1870s. Namely, it's time to introduce you to the Tewksbury family. James Denning Tewksbury, who went by Jim, was probably born in England or Wales around 1823. Details are scarce, but he immigrated to Maine at some point, where he was living up until around 1855 when he, like everyone else on the continent, headed to California. He would settle in Humboldt County in Northern California along the Eel River. And here he'll actually marry his first wife, a woman from the Athabascan-speaking Hoopa people. Unfortunately, her name has not been preserved, but appears to have been a happy and productive marriage, producing four sons and a daughter who had Tewksbury's name, meaning that he considered them all legitimate. This was not uncommon, and author Daniel Justin Herman makes the point that Gold Rush California may have had the highest rate of American and Amerindian intermarriage of any time in American history. 
However, this was still 19th century America, so it wasn't like it was ever going to be easy for the Tewksbury children to be mixed race. Though they dressed and spoke English as well as any of their neighbors, the Tewksbury children had black hair, dark brown eyes, and darker skin. Many times they were mistaken for being Mexican, which Arizonans had a very ambivalent feeling about. Obregón Pagán even recounts an incident where one son, Ed Tewksbury, confronts and slaps a high-talking, self-proclaimed outlaw because the man was buying a round of drinks for everyone, but after seeing Ed declared that he would not drink with a black man. The point the author is making is that, perhaps because of the sort of attitudes surrounding his mixed-race ancestry, Ed was always ready to match social violence with actual physical violence. As we'll see, this is a line that Ed will cross again. But let's get back to the story of Jim Tewksbury. Sometime before 1875, and a couple sources say as early as 1871, he would move the family to either Battle Mountain, Nevada, or somewhere in Elko County. But he didn't seem to stay long there, as he would be in Arizona by 1877. However, he arrived a widower. His Hoopa wife had died, possibly before he even left California. There is no good record of her death, just like there isn't a record of her name. But three of her children would eventually succumb to tuberculosis, leading some historians to speculate that she also died of consumption. So at this time, the Tewksbury family consisted of Jim and his children, John, Ed, James, Frank, and Elvira. After living in Arizona for some time, he would meet and marry a widower named Lydia Marston Krigler Schultz. Lydia Marston had quite the story herself, having immigrated from Wales in 1851 as part of her Mormon faith, but she chose to settle in California and not Utah. And here she married fellow convert-slash-immigrant Rufus Krigler, and she bore him a daughter. However, Krigler did not seem long for the world because three years later, the now Lydia Marston Krigler was marrying German immigrant David Schultz. This couple would be together for a decade and have three children, eventually moving to Sunflower in Arizona. However, Schultz would die of typhoid fever, leaving a 30-year-old Lydia twice widowed with four children. But it's here that she met Tewksbury, and the two would marry in Tempe in November 1879. However, the big news for the family is that the previous year, 1878, Tewksbury's oldest sons had scouted a place that positively looked like Eden for anyone interested in ranching. Pleasant Valley. Yavapai County Assessor records tell us that some of the Tewksbury sons, at least the two oldest, John and Ed, were living in Pleasant Valley in 1878, where they had a few hogs, horses, and, of course, cattle. The assessor rolls also find that by 1882, John had a ranch of his own along Cherry Creek with 82 horses and 25 head of cattle. This homestead was called, imaginatively, the John Tewksbury Ranch, but was also named the Upper Tewksbury Ranch mainly because by this time the patriarch of the family, Jim, had also moved to Pleasant Valley with his new bride, Lydia, and her children, and they were living a couple miles away at the Lower Tewksbury Ranch. I'll also throw in here that in 1882, John Tewksbury actually married Lydia's daughter. 
her oldest child from her first marriage. And personally, I think it's a little weird that he married his new stepsister, but who am I to judge? One last little detail is apparently the father, Jim, had grown fond of the Spanish custom of holding fiestas, and would often hold these type of community events for his friends and neighbors. And that's just to show you the kind of close-knit community we are talking about here, which at this moment shows no signs of the violence that's on the verge of erupting. Now, also in 1882, the second oldest Tewksbury son, Ed, would have a fateful meeting while idly drinking in a saloon in Globe. It was here, probably over a beer and some friendly conversation, that Ed met John Graham. A lot less seems to be known about the Graham family in total than their eventual bitter enemies, the Tewksbury's. The grave marker for John Graham, or Johnny as he was called by his friends, doesn't even list a birth date. But it does list 1854 for his brother Tom, who was the next sibling after him. Johnny was the fourth child, with an older brother and two older sisters. And we know that he was born in Northern Ireland to a Scottish father and an Irish mother, and that he, unlike his younger siblings, actually still had something of an Irish brogue when he spoke. The reason he had an accent and his two younger siblings, and eventually seven step-siblings, didn't, is because the family immigrated to America in 1851. Thomas, so the next son after John, is listed as being born in Ohio, but eventually the family would settle in Boone, Iowa by 1856. The Graham family matriarch, Jane Ballantine, would die in 1861, and then the father, Samuel, remarried less than two years later. Shortly after this marriage, the three eldest sons, including John and Tom, would leave home to seek their fortunes. Partially, this was because Samuel and his new wife started having children, so the homestead was quickly filling up and running out of space, but also because the boys didn't seem to get on particularly well with their new stepmother. John and Tom would head both to Alaska and California to try and make a living, but in California in particular, they struck out, despite working a claim along the Sacramento River for several years, in addition to other work such as logging. But they soon heard the rumors of better prospecting prospects in Arizona, so sometime after 1880, they decided to head east and try their luck again. By December 1881, they were in the boomtown of Globe and working three different claims in the area, but weren't exactly getting rich anytime soon. However, fortune seemed to be smiling on them now because while in Phoenix, the brothers had actually won something like 60 head of cattle in a poker game. Since this was the heyday of cowpunching in the territory, please see the previous episode if you need a refresher, the Graham brothers thought that raising cattle that could be sold for at least $40 a head sounded pretty good. And here we also get into a little something about the Grahams personally. Now, I try not to psychoanalyze historical figures too much because the margin of error is way too wide, but every once in a while you do get a good glimpse. Drusilla Hazelton a contemporary of the Grahams who knew them, said that John and Tom had visions of getting rich quick in Arizona by setting themselves up as cattle barons. Like I said, this was the height of the cattle boom, 
and they saw that others were getting rich off the backs of cows, so they figured if they were daring enough, so could they. And that attitude will explain several of their decisions in coming years. It's also what made that 1882 conversation with Ed Tewksbury in that bar and globe so very, very interesting. Over drinks, John made his ambitions known in that he was seeking a place to raise his newly acquired cattle and from which he could start on his dream cattle empire. And in what we can only now see as a darkly tragic irony, Ed invited John to come up and see Pleasant Valley. It was too perfect. Grass and forage was everywhere, competition seemed low, and helpful neighbors invited them in. Just months after this conversation, so by the end of 1882, John and Tom would pull up stakes and globe entirely and move with their herd to this paradise that Ed had shown them. As Obregón Pagán points out in his book, the Graham's first months in the valley were great and, dare I say it, peaceful. And their new acquaintances, the Tewksbury's, were downright neighborly. These helped their new neighbors set up their first temporary dwelling, a one-room split-log cabin at their chosen spot on Willow Creek, about five miles distance from John Tewksbury's ranch. The family also gave the Grahams some tips on the finer points of cattle ranching. At one point after the cabin was complete, the Grahams even hired Jim Tewksbury, the father, to help work their cows for 50 bucks a month. During their first winter, the Grahams were frequent guests at the Tewksbury Ranch, enjoying the type of conversation, food, and more permanent shelter that was lacking on their own homestead. But 1882 had a couple other notable instances that set up some of the heaviest dominoes that are going to fall. So, first off, after deciding to move to the valley, the Grahams also decided to expand their herd. They did this by buying 200 head of cattle from William J. Flake, the Mormon colonizer behind the community of Snowflake, who we talked about back in episode 81. To help herd these new cows to their site in Pleasant Valley, the Grahams hired Jim Tewksbury as an experienced hand. And I'll add here that we know a lot about this cattle drive because in three years' time, Jim Tewksbury will be actually testifying about its events in a court case against the very men who hired him. Long story short, we get into the problem of the open range here. The party picked up the 200 cows that they were owed, but as the herd started moving, other cows joined along. The plan was for one of Flake's men to be following a couple days behind and to help cut out and herd back any of these tagalongs. And this guy eventually did catch up with the Grams and did just that. Here's the kicker. Jim Tewksbury would later testify that the Grams took a few of these extra cows and hid them in a side canyon. So after Flake's man had taken back all the extra cows that he was aware of, these hidden cows were added back to the main group, which continued the trek toward Pleasant Valley. What's more, apparently some of the cows that the Grams had brought back with them actually belonged to William S. Atchison, Flake's neighbor, and they even displayed Atchison's brand. Now, we're going to get into this in another episode, but a little graft of some cows from larger operations wasn't that outside of the norm, nor was this a major deal for anybody. 
That is until the Tewksbury's and the Grahams could no longer live peacefully next to each other, and this all spilled out in court. Okay, that's the first thing that happened in 1882. The second thing is very similar. Because during the normal roundup that happened in the fall, it appears that the Grahams took and branded a couple of cows that belonged to a man named James Stinton. Stinton had been running cows in Pleasant Valley since the late 1870s and was one of the first to do so. And this is actually his second appearance in our podcast, because I also mentioned him back in episode 81. He was the farmer slash rancher that William Flake bought his land, the site of future Snowflake, from. He was merely a casual mention back then. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that I bothered to name him at all. But he's about to become a major player in the first part of our story. I'm going to go way more into detail about Stinton and his operation next week and why this incident with his cows is worth mentioning. But for right now, I want you to have fixed in your mind that Pleasant Valley is, well, a pleasant place and perfect for running cattle. However, it was also rugged and isolated, being about two days travel from Green Valley, which would later be renamed Payson. And in this pleasant place, we have two families, the Tewksbury's and the Grams, both small operations trying to make a go of it, with one perhaps a little more ambitious than the other. Doesn't sound like there's much here to start a decade-long feud that will make national headlines, does it? Well, join me next week, when a showdown with an overeager ranch manager, a prolonged legal drama, some rampant cattle rustling, and a shady backroom deal will suddenly turn these two sides against each other. And as we continue, what started as a protracted legal battle will steadily grow worse and worse and worse until both sides decide violence is the only answer. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.